All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Friday night we talked about Jesus being forsaken. Sunday we talk about Jesus being raised. So John chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 11 through 18. John chapter 20, we'll start in verse 11. These are the words of God. But Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and so as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary, Ma Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we've come before you on this Lord's Day, commemorating and celebrating the power of your, and glory of your Son's resurrection from the dead. We thank you that the tomb is empty and that Christ sits enthroned in heaven, having completed his work. We are eternally grateful that in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would grant us the peace and joy of Christ so that we may go about the business of the new creation. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, today is Resurrection Sunday. Now, all Sundays are Resurrection Sundays because Christ has reconstituted the Sabbath by reclaiming man in his dominion work. Uh, think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were, because of their sin, they were forced to rest at the end of their labors, at the end of that week. In Christ, however, we now rest at the beginning of our week. We rest at the beginning of all of our labors that we are going to go forth and do. We now work from our newly dignified position in Christ. We are en Christuo in Greek. We are in Him, so things are now different. It was on the first day of the new creation week when Jesus came walking out of the tomb, having defeated Satan's sin and death. He has reestablished a new humanity, and he has given us the task of implementing the victory of the gospel. I'll say that again. He has reestablished a new humanity, and he's given us the task of implementing the victory of the gospel. And indeed, we have the power because the tomb is, in fact, empty. The resurrection of Christ is the single greatest uncontested act of discontinuity the world had ever seen. I'll explain that, but I want to say it again. The resurrection of Christ is the single greatest uncontested act of discontinuity the world has ever seen. It was uncontested because Satan, man, and the created order were impotent and helpless in stopping it. There was no stopping the resurrection of Christ. You can seal the tomb and put him in the biggest stone you can find in front of it. There's no stopping it. It's uncontestable. 
Who can stay the hand of God? Death, who is the potentate and the ruler of all mankind, has done what only death can do, that is, kill. That's the only thing death can, in fact, do. We sinners, we threw everything we had at our disposal at Jesus. All of our sins, all of our mockery, our contempt, our scoffing, our taunting at Him, our hatred, our utter disdain for holiness, our demand for autonomy. We threw everything we could at Jesus. And as we noted Friday evening, the world threw everything it had at Jesus. Everything. In order to mollify and appease the wrath of man against God and His Word, we flagrantly beat the Christ, we nailed Him to the cross, and we were hoping and praying that He would stay there. That's what we were hoping and praying for. We wanted Him to stay put. We wanted Him to stay put. We wanted Him to stay dead. Our wrath against God and His holiness, all of our sins, all of our agonizing over uh, you know, our own selfish proclivities, we wanted to put Jesus on the cross and we wanted Him to stay dead. It was our intentions of making this Christ suffer as much as possible and make him stay dead. God gave us his son, and what did we do? We expelled him from the earth, or at least we tried. Let me ask a question. Is there a greater, more appropriate symbol for the logical consequence and outcome of human autonomy? Is there a greater, look to, the, look to the cross we have on stage, is there a greater, more appropriate symbol for the logical consequence and outcome of human autonomy, trying to live on our own terms? Is there a greater symbol? Because people wear these things all the time, right? They wear a cross around their neck. Well, what does it stand for? Well, we know what it stands for, really, but isn't there a greater, is there a greater symbol? I don't think there is. Let me ask it differently. Is not the cross the inevitable, the inexorable result of human autonomy? When we want to live our way, isn't that the greatest symbol that we have? With, with sin and death plaguing man and creation due to our untempered, immoderate desire to, to govern ourselves and to govern the world on our terms, isn't the cross the perfect expression of that endemic condition of sinful man? It's the perfect expression why wouldn't we take the Son of God and put Him on a cross and have it on our terms? Of course we would. The creation word wasn't sufficient enough for us, so we took the incarnate word and we nailed Him to a cross. And unless repentance captures a man too, he will try to put the inscripturated word to death. There's a reason why people don't want Bibles produced the way they want them produced. They want to burn the Scriptures. They want to Try to expel that darkness from us because that is the wrath of man. All of creation stands in judgment against unregenerate man. And once backed into a corner, that man or that woman will retaliate. And that's what the cross was. It was our retaliation against God. On the whole, the cross was man's verdict against God. You have to think of the cross in those terms. It was man's verdict against God. God. It was collectively and federally man's issuance of guilt. We said, God, you are guilty. It was sinful man's response to the covenant of grace. God gives us his son. He, see, he, he preaches and teaches the kingdom. And what do we do to him? 
You see, what the Tower of Babel could have only dreamed of, the events of Good Friday carried out. Our rendering of Jesus Christ as guilty was the natural, albeit broken, result of trillions upon trillions of sins, past, present, future sins, being shoved off of our plates and put onto His. The cross was, simply put, our desire to issue loud and clear a statement to our Creator, we are not guilty, you are guilty. And I say this to set the stage to further explain what I mean when I said that the resurrection was uncontested and discontinuous. Uh, It was uncontested because obviously Satan wasn't going to put a stop to it. He wasn't going to put a stop to it or even attempt to because he wanted the Son of God dead, not knowing Satan doesn't have the ability to know the future, so he, he doesn't know the outcome of, good, of uh, Easter Sunday, of Resurrection Sunday. So it was uncontested because Satan wasn't going to put a stop to it, and man couldn't put a stop to it. And why couldn't man put a stop to it? It was his doing, right? It was our doing. So the cross had to happen, and the resurrection had to happen for two reasons. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but I'm going to boil them down to two. One... Man's guilt for his sin had to go somewhere, so man put it on Christ. And isn't that ironic? (laughs) We had to take our wrath and our rage and our sin and put it somewhere. So what did we do? We beat him and we mocked him and we spat upon him and we murdered him. So it had to happen because of that reason. But second, man's guilt could, where else could man's guilt go? It could only go there because only Christ could bury that guilt that shame those sins in the grave and come out the other side leaving them behind forever now it was discontinuous in that Christ's resurrection had broken up the stony ground of sin and rebellion Christ's resurrection had broken up the stony ground of sin and rebellion Think of our normal condition apart from God's grace. Man is born, man dies, and in between, man sends up a storm. So if the wages of sin is death, and it is, then the resurrection is the great reclamation of all that sin had stolen. It's the great defeat of all of sin's power, all of man's wrath, and all of sin's ugly fruit. That's what the resurrection represents. Man raged against God at the cross, putting him there, driving those nails into his his hands and feet, driving the crown of thorns on his head so as to make him bleed, to humiliate him, putting a purple robe around him and mocking him. Oh, you're our king. Yeah, you look like you're a king. We raged against God at the cross, but God laughed at man at the resurrection of Christ. It was discontinuous because it was miraculous. It was unexpected. The continuity of sin and rebellion, this downgrade after downgrade of humanity, was finally taken care of in a discontinuous act of resurrection. So it was miraculous, yes, but it was miraculous because it was from God. The discontinuity lies in the fact that the normal, the old ways of doing things, the continuity had been severely disrupted by God himself. And that's what the resurrection is. It's disruption. Put differently, the resurrection has undone man's verdict. We issued a verdict of Christ. You are guilty. We will kill you. But the resurrection undoes that verdict. It vindicates Jesus Christ, and it establishes a new creation 
in the world. So we are living post-resurrection, post AD 70, in the new heavens and the new earth. And that reality is now to be implemented in the world through the teaching of the law and the preaching of the gospel. So on Friday, Christ was forsaken. On Sunday, Christ was raised. And it was all to the glory of God. Let's look at our passage and walk through it. In John chapter 20, the first 10 verses there, we learn that Mary Magdalene, she came early to the tomb while it was still dark. So we have to remember, this is very, very early, maybe like 5 o'clock, before the the first hour of 6 a.m. The stone, when she got there, was rolled away, so she ran to Simon Peter, and he and John raced to the tomb. And I love John's description in verses 2 through 4 because John wins the race, and he's sure to tell everybody about it. John was the youngest of the disciples. He was a whippersnapper, and uh, he decided he was going to outbeat old Peter, (laughs) and he did which tells us something about the eagerness of youthfulness and our pursuit of the resurrection, maybe. So they look inside. What do they find? They look into into this tomb, and they find the linen wrappings lying there, the uh, face cloth. John notes there in verses 5 through 7, the face cloth that they would have put upon him was folded neatly by itself. So children, just so you know, Jesus knows how to make his bed. And you should too. John, we're told, believed right then and there. He believed right as soon as he saw it in verse 8. But they didn't really understand the scripture pertaining to Jesus' rising from the dead. That's in verse 9. So they have this experience of the empty tomb. And John and Peter, they run back to the place where they were staying. They didn't live there. They were Galileans. But they were there for Passover. They were there with Jesus. They entered with him in, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And now they go back to the place where they were staying after seeing the empty tomb. And now we get to our passage. Mary, Mary Magdalene was standing outside the tomb and she was crying. She was crying. She peers inside, verse 11. By the way, the verb, the verb there was standing. That's in the LSB. The LSB tries to bring out the Greek tense a little bit more. But that's a very strong uh, verb. It's very strong. It emphasizes the fact that she's not going anywhere until this gets sorted out. She is standing there, and she's got to figure this out. She's got tears rolling down her eyes, but she's going to figure it out. Mary's tears obviously are emotional. We ought to see the tears of the world in them. Mary Magdalene looked inside only to find that there were two angels dressed in white. And they were sitting, and John says that one at the head and one at the feet. Why in the world would he say that? That was the place where Jesus was laid to rest. Remember, the tomb was a place where they put the body until the body decomposed, and then the bones were collected and put into an ossuary, like a small uh, concrete-type box. So this, that was just step one. But the angels are sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet. What, what is going on? Well, Oftentimes, we skip over Holy Saturday. We forget that Jesus rested on the Jewish Sabbath. Remember, they took him down off the cross because they didn't want any sort of pollution going on during their Passover rests. You can't have a dead corpse out there uh, from, of a Jewish man, so we have to make sure we bury him. So they would have done that uh, shortly after he passed away, some, at some point before the sundown of Friday night, which was when Passover Sabbath rest uh, began. So Jesus 
rested, lifeless, inert, fully and completely dead. He laid there as a dead man in that tomb. Jesus was and is to this day a man. He was a real man, a human being, fully God, fully man. And the motionless of death he experienced to the fullest. He was laid there in that tomb. He was really dead. He had been prepared for death. Now the angels are sitting to the left and the right, one at the head, one at the feet. And that is a representation of a new mercy seat. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, the angels were on the sides of the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was there. This is the new mercy seat now. Jesus is the new mercy seat. And why is he the new mercy seat? Well, the Lamb of God, the great sacrifice, was once there. He was executed as a criminal. Remember, his charge was treason. And yet he is no longer there. He was taken away from death because he had taken away the sins of the world. And that's just how it goes. In verse 13, the angels then ask, why are, why are you crying? They don't stand to the side and scoff at her. They're not mocking her. Rather, they enter into the pain. They enter into the suffering. Sometimes you, someone who's going through grief, the loss of a loved one, we oftentimes don't know what to say. Their question is, why are you crying? In other words, let's, let's deal with this. Pull this out. Explain to me the brokenness that you're feeling. And I know it's hard to communicate, but tell us. They're helping her navigate this perceived problem. And her response is very basic, isn't it? There's a problem here. Because they have taken away my Lord. Notice she calls him my Lord. They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Somebody did something. Because I was here when we buried him. The, the, the men rolled this huge stone. If you remember, the Jewish leaders wanted to make sure it stayed shut, so they would have dumped probably in a massive amount of wax sealant, some sort of sealant on there to make sure that this, nobody tampers with the body because they can't fuss with that. And now they don't, he, she's there. The, somebody rolled this back away. Where's his body? Where is my Lord? Somebody took it. Sort of a, a, a crime of exhuming a dead body. So it's a simple response. The man who I watched die on the cross, I helped bury with the finest of burial procedures. It was a rich man's tomb. That man's not here. He's supposed to be here. Obviously, he's dead. Obviously, somebody moved his body. But to where? Where did they move him? Even in death, she says Jesus is her Lord. Now, after she says this, interestingly enough, she turns around. She turns around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. We were told that it was Jesus. She didn't know. It's early in the morning. It had been a rough few days of emotional trauma. Her eyes... Um, <laughs> If you've ever cried for a long, long time, her eyes were probably swollen and puffy from all mascara running, everything, you know. <laughs> it was rough. Jesus is dead. That's her paradigm. Jesus is dead. So, of course, the person standing here is not Jesus. Even after he asked the same question, the angels asked, Woman, why are you crying? He even says, Whom are you seeking? She doesn't realize who it is, but verse 15 says that she supposed this man to be the gardener. It's one of my favorite passages here. Jesus didn't ask what she was looking for, but whom are you seeking? She thinks the man to be a gardener, but is she really wrong? Is she wrong? Isn't Jesus the second Adam gardener of a new creation? On the sixth day of the creation week, 
God made Adam. Day six, God created Adam and Eve. On the sixth day of the final old creation week, Pilate stood up and said, Behold the man. We're supposed to see a connection. Is Jesus the gardener? Is Jesus the gardener, capital G? Let's ask it another way. Has he taken on himself the thorns and thistles of a sin-plagued creation on himself? What else do you think the the crown of thorns represents, if not Adam's thorns that he had uh, received as, as as he disobeyed God? Did he not say that he was going somewhere to build a place in John 14? And isn't the new creation place a new creation world? That's the place he's going to prepare. Of course he's the gardener. He's the new Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the prophet, the priest, the king. All of those in capital letters. He's the cultivator. He's the one Revelation describes as the one who makes all things new. He is the gardener. Now Mary wants to know why the gardener took the body of Jesus because obviously for her, she wants to get the body back and put it back where it belongs. That's in verse 15. But in that moment, Jesus offers the shortest sermon known to mankind. The shortest sermon ever. The type of sermon that grips the heart to the fullest and it's only one word. What was that sermon? What did Jesus say? Mary. One word. Her name. Mary. The good shepherd knows his sheep. The good shepherd calls them by name. And guess what? The sheep hear his voice. In that moment, when he said her name, she turns to him, realizes who it is, calls him teacher, for that's what he is. And in that moment, she beheld with her own eyes the death conqueror. Mary Magdalene, you need to know this, she went down in history as being the first person to ever experience the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. She was the first one. The resurrection had already happened. And now we have the first witnesses called forward. Who who is the first witness? Mary, a woman, an untrustworthy woman. We don't believe the testimony of women in this culture. But it's who it is. She embraces him, but he retorts with this bizarre statement in verse 17. Stop clinging to me, he says. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. What a remarkable statement. But what does it mean? Jesus allowed the embrace, but something bigger was afoot. There is a mission, and she is the one who must do it. There is a mission, and she is the one who must do it. Her relationship to Jesus has now changed forever. Remember who we're talking about, Mary Magdalene. She was a friend, a human friend to Jesus, someone she loved. She was a part of that sort of inner circle, aside from James, Peter, James, and John, but, and aside from the 12 disciples, she was there. She, she was there with them, him all the time. Jesus cared for her. But he is risen. The old order is gone. She must now function in the power of the Holy Spirit in service to him as he goes and he sits enthroned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So at this moment, he says, you got to go tell the brothers. This is exciting. Go tell them. She must not hold on to him at all costs. No, she must take up her cross. She has to take up her cross now. She, too, must spread the gospel message. She, she is not to possess Jesus. That's another way to translate that, 
Greek word, but Jesus must possess her by his spirit. He is telling her, I'm going to the Father, and when I'm there, I'm going to be more present with you than ever before via the paraclete, via the advocate, via the Holy Spirit, the one I've told you about. Mary responds in obedience. She responds in obedience. She announces to the disciples the greatest news that ever hit the press, right? The greatest news that ever hit the world. I have seen the Lord, she says. I have seen the Lord. She proclaims the gospel, announcing the royal vindication of her Lord and King, telling the brothers, the disciples, all about this insane encounter that just took place. Luke tells us, and Aaron read this, that they thought it was just nonsense. (laughs) Oh, Mary. (laughs) Yeah, you silly girl. John isn't interested in telling that part of it. He's going to highlight the Spirit breathing over this new creation in the next section where he breathes over his disciples. And remember the story of Thomas who had questions and concerns, but he felt the holes that were there in Jesus' body. See, in John's mind, the Great Commission starts here. It starts here with Mary and the gardener. That's where the Great Commission starts. Now, a few points of application. What we are celebrating here today is, for many people, a gross exaggeration. It's bad enough to have our entire calendar focused on Jesus. Why in the world do we have to celebrate his resurrection? After all, everyone knows no one's raised from the dead, right? Aren't aren't we past such archaic assumptions about fables and tales? I mean, you Christians are ridiculous. We're not even post-enlightenment rationalists anymore as they beat their chest. They say to you, we are postmodern, and the truth is moldable depending on the situation. In fact, look around in D.C. at our wonderful, colorful flags as we say, speak your truth, you Christians. Now, I understand the near incredulity, this unbelievable thing that we are saying. I I get it. it. It seems wild. It's preposterous enough to suggest that God made everything and that man is in, made in God's image. It's even worse to suggest that man has fallen from his esteemed position in creation only to tumble into the ditch of sin and ruin, for which, if he wants to get out, he has to repent. And repentance requires humility. And who has that today? In a world whose propensity towards autonomy runs very deep, this desire for life on our terms, it runs very deep. What do we make of the resurrection? John's emphasis of Mary in this passage is truly remarkable. Her testimony, along with the testimony of the Galilean fishermen, is the very thing that humbles the arrogant hubris of modern skeptics. We're dealing with a young woman who had a best friend who died, and a bunch of ragtag former tax collector fishermen guys. Not ivory tower professors. (laughs) Just dudes. (laughs) And when we talk of the resurrection of Christ, we are doing so within the context of the world. This isn't Muhammad out in the wilderness with his wild, fanciful imaginations here. This is a real, tangible moment in a real, tangible place in real, tangible history. The resurrection in this world, not some other world, this world. 
Jesus really was, and he is, the Son of God who became the Son of Man in order to redeem the sons of men. He's the Son of God who took on flesh to become the Son of Man in order to redeem the sons of men. That's us, the sons of Adam. He was a teacher of the kingdom, and he was a priest of a new creation. He was established as king after his death and resurrection when he ascended to the Ancient of Days. From birth, this man, this God-become-flesh man, came to us in order to reclaim that which sinners have tried to take. And he did it through the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Flesh and blood, a pulse. Temptation to sin, yet sinless. Jesus had hair. And a beard. He ate food. And everybody wants to know, did he use the bathroom? He did. He used the restroom. I'm sure it was a great rest stop on the way from Jerusalem to Galilee. He sat around the fire chatting it up with his friends. It's very earthy, this gospel story. It's earthy. It's earthy and unpretentious because the second person of the Trinity entered into our space and time. Well, we all know it's his space and time, but he had given it to us to steward as his vicegerents, his co-rulers, were to rule with him, only to find, though, that we had sullied and blemished and stained this creation because of our rebellion. So this, the, the earthy, unpretentious gospel of the kingdom is such because Jesus became a man. The self-contained, absolute God, this concrete creator of all reality, had sent his Son to be the mouthpiece of a new creation order. The gospel is yet again another moment of sovereign dictation. It's a reordering of history and all of man's institutions and all of man's pursuit, his calling, we we can say, his dominion calling. Now, it's earthy, The gospel is earthy because it deals with us, and we are earthy people. I mean, think about it. We're from the dust, but it deals with us. But it's unpretentious because it's not something that Hollywood came up with. It's not like Thor coming to the rescue, right? This is a humble man who took on flesh. You know, people envision him with Fabio-like hair and, you know, this sort of beautiful white-skinned blonde Jesus. No, it would have been very, very dark-skinned with dark hair and just a normal guy. But that's why it's unpretentious. And the reason I believe that this event, this resurrection event, is the single greatest uncontested act of discontinuity of all time is because dead men don't come back to life in this way. Human history from Adam to today is a continuous story of man's rebellion and exasperation. And the end result is always death. It's always death. Death is all that men have ever known since Adam. I was, you guys saw the the beautiful full moon. And I had said to Eli, man, think of the billions of people who have just looked at that in all of history. How many eyes have laid hold of that? It's it's kind of mind-numbing to think about. But then think about the human race and how much we've just dealt with death. It's constantly there. It's always in front of us. Solomon says it's better to go to a funeral than a party because at least at a funeral you'll be sober and you'll be thinking about your life. 
You don't think about your life at a party like that. You don't get this existential crisis when you're celebrating a birthday. You do at a funeral, though. And that's what the cross should drive us to. Lazarus, remember Lazarus, Jesus' friend, illustrates the point. Men are born and men die. That's just how it is. That's the cycle until it's not. The Logos of God was put to death by unjust cowards on the very same day that Adam was sentenced to death by God. His death was covenantal judgment, the assurance of condemnation for those already condemned, yet it's the glorious exoneration of God's elect. The resurrection is, friends, the transformation of our world, what we do with our lives, how we think, what we desire, why we labor, why we gather in this place, and then we go and expend our energies on our businesses and our jobs and so forth. It changes everything. Like God at creation, Jesus rested in the tomb on the seventh day, and John tells us that the first day of the week is now the first day of a new creation order. Things are different. The resurrection of Christ is the very same light that bursts forth on the first day of creation. Think of it this way. The divine word light that spoke all things into existence. That's John 1. It's the same divine word light that has canceled the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. Everything is now changed. Do you believe it? It's not, when we say everything has changed, it's not like we have vibranium to add to the periodic table now. It's earthy. It's an earthy gospel. It's that mankind is now changed. The esteemed position that we had as prophet, priests, and kings made in God's image, that we sullied and tainted with our sin, that has now come back to us because of Christ. The old order of Adam has been supplanted by the new order of the second Adam. Our sins, what are they? Forgiven. What does our world need right now? Their sins forgiven. We have it. Our inability to keep God's law established in us by the Holy Spirit. Our penchant for sin and transgression, it's expunged, it's replaced by a desire to worship in spirit and in truth. Easter was the birthday of the church. Pentecost was its baptism. And the resurrection was, and it remains today, a reminder that the dominion of sin and death has been abolished. Man's ver verdict of guilt towards Christ has been reversed and undone. The higher court of heaven uh, the appeal, appellate court decided to overturn that on Easter Sunday. So it's man who stands guilty before God, and it's man who has the opportunity to repent. So then how shall we live when, when a man has come through death and out the other side? How should we live? Well, we know that the death of Christ gave us legal access to the rule of God, that is the kingdom of God. The resurrection now gives us the power to be faithful to it. The re resurrection is vindication. Do you believe this, church? You have been raised with Christ. You died with him. You were buried with him in that tomb. And you have been raised with him. And now you are seated with him. And John sees all of these things running together, as should we. This vindication is the justice of God given to Jesus. His vindication the tomb is now empty, therefore we have to trash the idols. The time of unbelief is now over. The time for faith and faithfulness is right now. Resurrection is the process whereby God has bringing restoration to the world. Wherever sin goes, resurrection goes. 
the new birth that you receive, that is resurrection power. The restoration of man, resurrection power. The, the changing of your focus and your mindset, resurrection power. All of our institutions now can be toppled and rebuilt under Christ's authority. That is resurrection power. Death and resurrection, that's the pattern. So in your relationships, we must die to self and we must live in Christ towards one another. Your spurious views of others uh, have to be put to death as well and raised in Christ. Your views on economics and politics and education, your views on authority and submission, your views on parenting and marriage, all of it has to die with Christ and be raised with Christ. Your worldview must die with Christ and be raised with Christ. All of it. And if it's a thing in this world, it must die in Christ and be raised with Christ. And the reason that's the case as we close is because there's a way that seems right to a man but we know its end is death. And we don't want what seems right to us. You should not want that. We don't want anything to do with that. Run from it. Run from trying to seek and lean on your own understanding. Run away from human autonomy. Run away from self-seeking. Isn't that this gospel we preach? We got to stop apologizing for the gospel in our preaching today. Sorry to inconvenience you, but Jesus loves you. Could you believe on him? No, that's not authoritative. Run from yourself. Run to Christ. Run fast to the empty tomb. Run to wisdom. And since Christ is wisdom, the wisdom that shames the wisdom of man, we must go to him and go to him as he is in resurrection glory. Go, listen, this is, my, this is my final word here. Go to the gardener, let him hand you a tool, and then go about the business of reordering the world so that it reflects the gardener's wishes. That's our task. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to us. You have been gracious, and we don't deserve it. But Father, we come to you humbled by your word, humbled by what you have done. We know, Father, that you and your Son and even your Spirit were involved that resurrection morning and Jesus is coming back from death and being raised. He was raised in this incorruptible flesh. And we look forward to the day where that will be our experience as well. Father, help us to live in light of this resurrection, to not apologize for the gospel, but to view it as earthy, to view it as unpretentious, to view it as the very power that you have given us to send this message into the world to reclaim sinners. We glorify you this day. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. In Christ's name I pray, amen.